Okay, you can take your Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter 9. And as you're turning there, I just want to mention, continue to pray for Amy Como. Uh, she's in Turkey, and um, the bombs are getting pretty close to where she's at. And she's, uh, so they had a canceled church this morning, and her mom told me, Magda, that um, in her, they, even though they had canceled church, they had home groups, and 10 more people were there in home groups. So bombs do help. Uh, spur people on to reality to say life is short and this world is insecure. Uh, so you better start learning as much you, as you can of the Word of God, right, and of who Christ is and your relationship to Him before it's all over. So um, just continue to pray for her that the Lord would keep them safe there in, uh, in Turkey. All right? And uh, so let's uh, look at Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at the first uh, eight verses. And we're going to look at this morning the, a foretaste of glory that were, was given to the uh, disciples, the apostles, uh, called the Transfiguration. And let's pray. Father, this morning I do thank you for sending, for you sending your son Jesus Christ to accomplish his mission in this world, to die in the place of sinners, and that all who would come and believe in him uh, would have their sins forgiven and would be promised eternal life. And also, Lord, a life of service here while they waited to go into your presence. And so we thank you that in the scriptures we have uh, the very life and real experiences of the apostles uh, before the Word of God was, the New Testament was even written, uh, that they were learning revelation. They were learning about who you, who you were, Lord. And what they learned is now written in the Word of God for us to teach and to know, so we can know the same things, so we can experience what they did uh, by reading it from the Word of God. And I pray, Lord, it would have the same effect on us as it had on them, so we would become real, uh, genuine servants and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us with that today as we look at your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So we're going to look at chapter 9, verse 1 through 8. But before I get there, let me just get you uh, from where I, was, where I came from, from last time. That I, I want to remind you that the Gospel of Mark is really a gospel of uh, the servant savior, that's very much stressed in the gospel. Uh, Jesus was a servant, uh, and he came. So the Messiah uh, that God sends is the kind that no one would expect. And the reason why is because everybody thought the Messiah should be a king and have a crown and be a conqueror. Uh, but they were, were not expecting a humble man who would come as a servant uh, to bear the cruelty, the suffering, the humiliation, and the shame of death on a cross. But that's exactly who God sent and how he sent the Lord Jesus Christ. So from last time, we learned that Jesus' genuine disciples have a continuous desire to follow after Christ, to learn from Christ, to accept what his teaching was, and then to walk uh, the path that the Lord lay before them. Uh, they understand that following a suffering servant uh, would be costly. There would be a cost to be a believer. There is a cost to be being a believer. And he set down some of the conditions of true discipleship in from chapter 8, verse 34 onward. And he gave three conditions of a real disciple. And the first condition was they must deny themselves. Right? They need to disown or turn off uh, themselves. In, the same, in, in other words, they were to deny their sinful self. Uh, the person who has their own interests at the center of everything, which is everybody, and not God's interests. So Jesus' disciples come to the place where uh, they know what hinders them from giving their life over to service of God, and usually it is some selfish, sinful uh, desire or passion that they have. The second 
condition was found in verse 34, that's to take up their cross, his cross. Like the Lord, each disciple must bear his own cross, right? In the, it is, the, of course, the shame and the suffering a disciple assumes because they become a disciple of Jesus Christ and they have a relationship to Jesus Christ. So the symbol of the cross has one objective. It is uh, it ruthless, ruthlessly intends to bring death to self, uh, the sinful, the the natural sinful self, the rebel inside of us, uh, must be uh, put to an agonizing death. In other words, the disciples of Jesus Christ must no longer make their own interests and desires the supreme concern for their life, but of course they must turn from this idolatry of self-centeredness to follow Christ. So that means that the disciple of Jesus Christ grows in spiritual maturity, and when they grow, they realize that there must be more self-denial when it comes to the death of their self-importance and the death to their self-satisfaction and death to self-absorption and death to self-advancement and death to self-dependence, which we all suffer from. We suffer from self-centeredness. And so that must be put to death. So there's a painful blow that comes to the disciples of Christ, to the inner self, as they want and desire to follow Jesus Christ because it is a radical life, the Christian life. It is a different life. Uh, The Spirit of God makes us so different than the world and so different than the way we used to be. All our desires and passions change. And of course, the reality of that particular principle of discipleship is brought about in a passage of Scripture like Galatians 5.24 where it says, Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, you're going to be a completely different person when you come to Christ and the Spirit of God indwells you and now begins to show you your sin, convict you of your sin, and then as you, He does so, you want to put that sin to death. So the Lord of glory has called all His disciples to a life of self-denial and cross-bearing. And that means it is absolutely impossible to be a Christian without self-denial and cross-bearing. This goes with the lot. In fact, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, talking about the same uh, narrative, said, Who do, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So see, that is part of it. And then, of course, there's a third condition, and that the first one is deny self, the second is take up his cross, and verse 34, and follow me, that the rest of your life you will be following Christ. It's just not a one-time event and experience. It's every day your desire will grow to follow Christ to the point that the command, which is in verse 34, to follow Christ, is a command that denotes a continual persevering obedience to follow after the leadership of Jesus Christ. Jesus goes to his death, and all his disciples who follow behind him must also face death to self. If you want to follow me, in other words, do not expect an easy time as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So as a believer follows behind and bears his cross, they will feel its weight, they will feel its pain, they will feel its suffering, they will feel its conflict, and as they experience those things, they'll also feel the joy that goes with it, the the joy that's laid before them. So, in other words, a willing disciple of Christ, when they endeavor to hold fast to the truth of the Word of God, there's going to be some opposition. When they endeavor to practice putting off sin, and mortifying the deeds of the body, there is going to be a struggle between the flesh and what God wants you to do. 
when a disciple endeavors to live righteously in the middle of a wicked and immoral and willful generation, which we live in today, which everyone has lived in from the, from the time that sin came into the world, and when a disciple endeavors to hold a faith which the world ridicules as too restrictive and too narrow and too foolish, and yet we're counted as fools for Christ, when a disciple endeavors to put on the whole armor of God to stand up against the wiles and the schemes and deceptions of the devil, there is a warfare going on. When they endeavor to live differently, instead of living the, moral, the normal immoral standard of the world or immoral standard of the world, they want to live holy and they want to live godly in a way that pleases God and not anyone else. And then, of course, when they endeavor to live their lives, if needful, for the sake of Christ and the gospel, if they have to lose their life, they're willing to do that too. Um, because Jesus Christ means everything to them. Jesus Christ means everything in the word of God. He is the, he is the center, he is the main figure of all scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ was absent from the word of God, there would be no salvation. We wouldn't be sitting here today. All right, so now that brings me to my text this morning. So Jesus' true disciples, those willing to accept the reality that following Jesus would cost something, are blessed with something others are not blessed with. What are they blessed with? They're blessed with more revelation. They're blessed, in other words, with more teaching. They're blessed with the truth about what really has taken place and how someone really becomes right with God. So Jesus wants his inner core of disciples to use their eyes and to use their ears to learn so that a stumbling block to their faith could be removed. Namely, the necessity that the Messiah should suffer and die. They were having a difficult time grasping that. Not only that, but they were having a difficult time grasping almost everything that was taught to them to this point. Yes, they are believers, they are followers, but they still don't have all the information that they need. So what does Jesus do? Being the teacher that he is, he provides to them a very unique experience that changes their whole life, that changes the whole direction on what they're going to do after this particular event. And Jesus does it to a small group of people. He is saying to them, Use your eyes and you will see. Use your ears and you will listen to what you need to hear. And so that's what he does in this text this morning. So the first thing I want you to see in the first four verses is this. To look at what they're going to see is they're going to look at the inherent glory of Jesus, which they have not necessarily picked up on until this time. In other words, the first thing that they are confronted with is this, that the age to come, the age of the kingdom, is already here in Jesus Christ, but not yet in its fullness. So, so not only will they receive more revelation about who Jesus is and what he came to do, but also that suffering and humiliation will go on forever, will not go on forever because there will be a future kingdom that will come with power and glory. And this is where I ended last time. And I want you to take your Bibles, look at chapter 9, verse number 1, and notice what it says. And Jesus was saying to them, all right, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God 
after it has come with power. Now, that must have been very interesting for their ears. The phrase case death in the Hebrew is it's an idiom and it means physical death. Um, what it means is that death is figured as a bitter poison, which it is, which all sooner or later must taste. All right, so he says to them, listen, those who are standing here will not taste death. So see, Jesus was saying among the larger crowd and from his 12 disciples who were in that crowd that some of them would not experience the taste of death. Until when? Until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, the arrival of the kingdom mentioned will be associated with visible power. They will be able to see what he's talking about. Now, the question is, what event took place in the lifetime of certain of the disciples that he's talking about here? Well, you know what? When he, if you ever study this passage of Scripture, there's actually five varied views from Mark's 9-1 event here. Some people believe he's talking about the resurrection and ascension. Some are, think that he's talking about Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Some think that he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Some think that he's talking about the manifestation of the kingdom in the church. And some think he's talking about the transfiguration. Well, of course you're going to be thinking, well, what do you think? See, the view that I take, and that makes the most contextual sense, is view five. He's talking about the transfiguration, and the reason why is that's what comes next in the text. So we don't have to go anywhere to find out what he's talking about. We have to just look at the text, because let me give you right up front that the transfiguration, which we're going to find out what that means in a second, serves as a visible type of the end time coming of the kingdom of God. The Lord's giving, a, 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 in other words, a preview of what is going to come. But he does it in such a dramatic way, it changes their whole way of looking at things. So, in other words, the age to come is already here because Christ is there with the disciples, but the fullness of the kingdom is yet to come because the full plan of God has to take place, right? Another thing that we see under them looking at the inherent glory of God is that Christ is, and this is very significant, Christ is the brightness of the glory of God. If the cross and the glory are one thing in the mind of God, in verse number 2 and 3, we'll see that in a minute. Now, this is what happens. Six days later, after Jesus tells this to the disciples, six days later, Jesus tells his disciples about seeing the kingdom of God with power. Jesus takes three of his 12 disciples. That is his inner circle. And that inner circle is Peter, James, and John. All right, because these men are going to be significant to witnessing the writing, the actual writing of the New Testament. So he picks them out as the inner core, all right? And he leads them up a mountain, a very steep mountain, difficult mountain to climb, and the reason why it says in Scripture is because it was a high mountain. It was either Mount Tabor, Mount Hermon, or Mount Miron. Uh, either one could qualify. Most people think it is today Mount Hermon, but this mountain is probably around 4,000 feet high. It's, it's a very high mountain, but it has a long type of gradual moving up the mountain. It's not like steep like this. It's it's a long, and so you can walk up it. And so that's what he does with his disciples. Uh, each of the mountains that I mentioned could be a possible location of the transfiguration. Of course, Jesus also wanted a secluded and private place so that he can be alone with his inner circle of disciples because he has something really important to tell them. Look at verse number 2 of chapter 9. It says, six days later, 
Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain and then notice what it says, by themselves. All right, so it's Jesus and three apostles, right? That's it. Three of his core disciples. Now, once Jesus and his disciples reach the place on the mountain that Jesus brings them, and of course other uh, gospels say it's the top of the mountain, so they could have, you know, went to the top of the mountain, and what happens there is something amazing happens. In verse number 2, it says this, and six days later, James and John the high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. That's what happens right in front of their eyes. Now, you probably are very familiar with the Greek word here uh, for transform. It's metamorphosis, right? Just like we, we, we learned in science how the, the, you know, the caterpillar turns into the beautiful butterfly, two completely different bodies and manifestations of that one living thing. Well, that's the word that is used here, uh, and it, it's a word that means to be changed into another form, to be transformed. And another interesting thing about it was is this, that is actually in the language, it's a passive voice in the verb that indicates that Jesus did not do this on himself. It was the Father in heaven who transformed his body into this change before their eyes. It was the glorification of the physical body of his humiliation. And some teach that the transfiguration uh, is not about the deity of Jesus, but his perfect humanity. I believe it's talking about both. I think the best way that I've heard it said was that God changed Jesus formed by allowing his pre-incarnate glory, that means him being in the human body, to shine forth, all right, him, before he came to this earth, he, had, he was with his father in glory, in the presence of holiness, because he, he is God. And so he, God allowed this pre-incarnate glory to shine through his human features, as a foretaste of his coming exaltation and as a view to the coming kingdom of God when Jesus Christ will in all his glory reign on this earth, not only in heaven, but on this earth, and people will be able to see his glory. Now, not only his features changed, but if you notice in verse number three, his clothing changed. It says, and his garments became radiant, and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. So his garments are described as white and glistening like nothing that could be produced on earth. Not fab, not tide, not oxyclean. No kind of bleach can make clothing this white. So Jesus, in a sense, had a super heavenly whiteness. And the disciples were, remember, they were seeing this. This was something visual that the Lord gave them to see. But you know what? They were seeing the glory of Christ. Gospel of Luke chapter 9 says this, they saw his glory. Now, that becomes very interesting because we get a real hint here on what Jesus meant in this statement that some of them would not taste death. And it's this, the hint is they were in the presence of the glory of God and they did not die. Because from the Old Testament, if you stood in the presence of the glory of God, you would die. Right? When God gave the Ten Commandments, he told the people to stand away from the mountain that he was giving the commandments on, lest if they come too close, the animals and the people would die. Why? Because the glory of God was there. So this was such a significant event that all the gospel writers say something about it. Three of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, present the narrative of the transfiguration. The Gospel of John does not include the narrative, but this is what he says, and you know the verse, 
right? We, we quote it all the time when we, when we witness the people. Because John wanted to display Jesus Christ and the glory of Christ. What does it say in John chapter 1 and verse number 14? And the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us and we saw his glory. What is he talking about? He's talking about the transfiguration. As the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the Apostle Peter mentions it in, in chapter, why don't you turn there in your Bibles, turn to Second Peter. I want you to see how this has affected the Apostles to the point where they could not get this out of their mind. In Second Peter chapter 1, in verse 16 through 18, notice what it says. It says, for we did not, this is, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were, here it is, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves, notice what he says, heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. That's the transfiguration. So see, this event was so significant that all the apostles and those writers of scripture mentioned it in their writings. It changed them forever. See, the glory assigned to each part of creation is not inherent glory, but reflected glory. We are baked dirt, according to Scripture. That's all we are. So therefore, we have no glory that comes from inside of us. Whatever measure of glory we receive comes from outside ourselves. And the reason why human beings have any dignity at all is because God has assigned dignity to us. He created us in his image, and that gives us dignity. So it is not inherent in us to have any kind of glory. If there's any glory that is seen from us, it has to be reflected glory. See, the glory of Jesus is inherent glory. It is not like the reflected glory that was shown on the face of Moses in the Old Testament. Remember when Moses went up to the mountain? Uh, well, even Moses says, Lord, I want to see your glory. And what, how does God answer Moses? Moses, I'll tell you what, I can't show you my full glory, but I'll show you my back parts, all right? Be, my behind glory, in a sense. I will show you that, all right? Because this is what he says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. See, in the human body, in the human flesh, in the bodies that we have right now, we could never stand in the presence of the glory of God. We would be consumed. We just could not take it. In fact, when Moses came down from the mountain, the people couldn't even look at his face because the Bible said his face shone because he was speaking with God. And they had to look away from him. So Moses got a veil and put it over his face until it kind of wore off. Right? In other words, that the glory that Moses had on his face was a reflected glory from the glory that came from God while he was in his presence. And of course, Moses didn't die there because God protected him with a cloud. A cloud consumed him so he would not die. So see, God's glory is his own and proceeds from within the very nature of his majestic deity. The deity of Jesus Christ birthed forth from within him, showing forth his glory. So Jesus is the brightness of the glory of God. The glory, and that glory is reflected from within him and not from outside of him. In fact, even when we get to the New Testament, we get to the last book of the Bible. What does it say there? We're not going to need the moon and the sun anymore. And the reason why, it says in, in, in Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the lamp are its temple. And then it says there in verse 23, and the city has no need of the sun or the moon 
to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. That's Jesus Christ. Now, why is that so significant? Because the disciples had to see and had, had to see with their own eyes a display of the coming kingdom. And so they were able to see the glory being manifested in Jesus' human body without dying. That's interesting. Now, before I go there, in verse number 4, let's turn back to Mark chapter 9, verse number 4. There is a third thing on what they were seeing, and it was this, that Christ is the fulfillment not only of the glory of God, but he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets that the Old and the New Covenants are inseparable in God's plan of salvation. See, there, there came a sudden appearance while Jesus' was glory was being manifested, of an appearance of Elijah, who was accompanied by Moses. Look what it says in verse 4. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, remember, Elijah represented the prophets. And Moses represented the law. See, these two significant figures talking with Jesus testified to him as being the true Messiah, that all redemptive history was leading to the cross by the one who would fulfill all the law and all what the prophets said. And who was that? That was Jesus. So all kinds of stuff was going on in this mountain here. Now, wouldn't you like to be a fly on that mountain to hear what they were talking about? Well, you are a fly today because the Bible tells us what they're talking about. But it's not found in the Gospel of Mark. It's found in the Gospel of Luke. So you'll want to turn there. I'm sure you will. Right? It says in Luke chapter uh, 9 in verse number 30 and 32, Luke 9 and verse 30. It says, and behold, two men were talking with him. Of course, again, they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's what they were talking about. Now, let me explain that, what they were talking about, because the word departure is actually the Greek word that means exodus. All right? So, of course, it brings us back to the time where God took his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, right? He rescued them from that. But this is not an Old Testament exodus here. Actually, the word departure, if in some uh, Bibles it may translate the word, it means death. So, in other words, they were talking about Jesus' death, his departure, his death from this world. See, the two permanent human residents of heaven, Moses and Elijah, right, each of whom had a rather spectacular entrance or exit from this world into the celestial realm. Remember, Moses died on Mount Nebo, and once God saw, let him see the land, and then God buried him, nobody knows where God buried Moses, and then Elijah never died. So, see, some people believe that Moses represented death and Elijah represented life, and that Jesus Christ is the one who brings both of those things, abolishes one, and gives to us the other, all right? So, some of those things can be found in that, but the point is that Moses and Elijah came down to this earth to discuss our Lord's coming death and the events at Jerusalem at the coming Passover season. But, see, in other words, Jesus would lead the people of God out of the bondage of sin in a new exodus through his death, a new Passover. If Remember, in the Old Testament, when the blood was splattered on the doorpost, the angel of death passed over them? Well, remember, Jesus Christ, when he sheds his blood and someone believes in him, then, see, death no longer has a sting on that person. 
The judgment of God is no longer on that person. That person, because of the blood of Christ, is passed over and then, in turn, is given life. That's what they're talking about here. See, and of course, we know that resurrection was going to happen and he would constitute a new people who would come into the church. So, see, in other words, the purpose of the transfiguration and conference with Moses the greater messenger of the law, and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets, was to associate the work of Jesus with the meaning of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus clarifies it. He brings it to light. He makes it alive. And so the disciples had to know this if they're going to go on and minister as servants of Jesus Christ. But there's something else that, must, uh, that we must not miss here that the Old Testament saints from time past are very interested and engaged in seeing Jesus accomplish his work on the cross of Calvary. Don't forget, everyone before the event of the cross are saved on credit. You got that, right? And what does that mean? that the enactment of eternal redemption to be accomplished by Christ was the, of great interest to the saints of previous times. And the reason for that is because no one could be saved whether one lived before the cross or after the cross if Christ did not actually die on the cross. You got that? See, that was his mission was to suffer, to die, to rise from the dead, and to obtain for all believers eternal redemption. Not temporary redemption, eternal redemption. In fact, the writer of Hebrews brings this out to his audience of Jews when he says this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then he says this, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve a living God. See, the only one who could do that is Jesus Christ. So these heavenly visitors are very interested in what is going on with Jesus Christ and that he would actually die on the cross. Now, that's the listen, that is the seeing part. Now, here's the hearing part that they're responsible for in our text, and it's this, in verse number 5, let's back to Mark chapter 9, verse 5, and it's simply this, that we have to all, they had to hear, we need to hear the endorsement of the Father to simply listen to the Son. That Jesus Christ is the final revelation of God. There is no other revelation, there is no other message, there is no other person that is going to accomplish God's will after him or before him. Jesus Christ is the one. Now, if you notice in verse 5 and 6, something is going on while all this other stuff is going on. It says, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then in verse 6 it says, and he did not know what to answer, for they became afraid. In other words, Please stop talking, Peter. Please start listening. Now, you say, well, why did Peter do what he did? Well, there's a couple reasons why. Peter obviously did not want this experience to end. So he proposed to build some temporary shelters to make their stay on the mountain more comfortable. Also, he needs to build tabernacles, he thought, to protect them from the presence of the glory of God, so they would not be consumed. And of course, he knew that would be fatal. But they didn't die. And in fact, it says on here 
that Peter pretty much didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to act. And you know what? Neither you or I would never know what to do either. All right? So he was really, but they became terrified. And that's what usually happens when somebody realizes they're in the presence of God. A sense of terror strikes them. The reality of that moment strikes them. But notice, again, in verse number 7 and 8, that Christ is the final word in Revelation. In Christ, the final word is spoken, and in Christ alone the Father is well pleased. For it says, then a cloud formed and overshadowed them, protecting them from the remaining glory of God. So they saw the glory of God, and the cloud enveloped them, and it became a terrifying situation. And of course, the cloud is, is, a, is a mindful of the Shekinah in the Old Testament, represented by the glory cloud that was among the people. And that glory cloud represented not only the glory of God, but his very presence. They were in the presence of God, but they did not die. And how could that be? The only reason it could be is that only Jesus can bring us into the presence of God and live and relive. He's the only one who could do it. Because not only is God himself, but he is God in human flesh who is sinless. So see, in other words, at this point, the voice from the cloud was the Father's voice. And as he addressed the three inner core disciples with the same message or the same statement that he gave at Jesus' baptism, notice in verse 7, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. And what does he say to him? Listen to him. Will you stop doing things and listen to him? Because there is no more. In other words, don't listen to the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious and the political leaders. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to anyone else. Listen to Jesus, my son. So the com- it's a command in Scripture to keep listening to Jesus. It's no longer Moses and Elijah who is God's authorized spokesman but it is Jesus who is God's authorized spokesman. He is to be continually heard and continually obeyed, and he is the one you continually follow. In fact, Jesus is the one who is the greater Moses. That was already told us in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, the prophecy of Christ. It says, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. That's what he said back in Deuteronomy. So this is fulfilling a prophecy. And of course, again, Hebrews, if you open up the first chapter and you look at the first couple of verses, this is what it says. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us In his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by his power. Who is that? That's Christ. So see, what Jesus said about his impending sufferings and cross-bearing was necessary before the kingdom could come in power and glory in the future. You want the kingdom to come, so do I. In fact, in the Lord's prayers, what do we pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? We're still praying the kingdom come in its fullness, and it will come. But all these things had to take place before it's going to come about. In fact, we are still in the church age, the age of grace, where the gospel is still going out to the world. People are still hearing the gospel, still coming into and believing and seeing the kingdom of God as they trust in Christ. And as that happens, we're moving closer and closer and closer to the end when all these things, the tribulation and then the coming kingdom, are going to come in their fullness. Now, all that's taking place, and then notice, suddenly... 
the three intercord disciples realized the heavenly visitors have disappeared and they were alone with Jesus. Look what it says in verse 8. It says, all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore, comma, then what does it say? Except Jesus alone. Boy, that is, seems to be an exclamation mark on everything that went into what was going on. That he was asking his three disciples to see the glory of Christ. Right? Because he, Jesus Christ is the glory of the Father. And to see the fulfillment that he provides in the law and, and, and the prophets. And now, of course, to use your ears to listen because Jesus is the final revelation of God. If you listen, if you follow, he will bring you to God. He will bring you into the presence of God where you will no, no longer experience any death or suffering or crying, but you will experience the very presence of God. In other words, they just experience real worship. Isn't that what worship going to do for us? It's going to, when we leave these bodies and go into the presence of God, you know what we're going there for? To worship God. We're saved to worship. Right? Before we couldn't worship God. We would worship something, but not God, the real God. But now we can worship God. And that experience, once you have it, you don't want to leave it. You want to experience it over and over and over again. So see, several things were burned into their mind as Jesus stands there with them before they descend down the mountain. The first one is, if you look at the sun, you have hope. And if you listen to the sun, you'll end up where the kingdom of God is. So see, Jesus can give you what Moses and Elijah couldn't. Jesus will bring you the fullness of the kingdom, and he's the only one who can do that. And so how does he leave them in verse 9, which I will not look at today, but next time. It says this in verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen. Until what? Until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Well, that's giving something else to think about. And, of course, they say, what does that mean? You know, no one's ever risen from the dead. So if you leave out the cross, there's no washing away of sin. If you leave out resurrection, there's no victory over sin. And if you leave out Jesus Christ, there's nothing. He is the center. He is the central of our worship and our praise. And that's, if there's one point that this event happens, should bring to us, is that Jesus Christ is it. If you go, try to go to get to God in any other way, you will not get there. You will think you're getting somewhere when you're going to end up in hell. So they had a foretaste of the very face and embrace of God. And to me, that this passage of Scripture becomes very significant as I learn some of the things that the disciples learned. There was a, a Sunday school teacher in England who had a class of uh, 9 and 10 years old, and she was talking one day about, about heaven and about... Uh, the heavenly city, and the kingdom of God. And one little boy raises his hand and says, well, how do you know? You've never been there. And the teacher said to him, well, have you ever been to London? He says, no, but my father has been there, and he's written me letters telling me about it. And the wise teacher says, well, you know what? My father is in the heavenly city. And he sent me a letter telling me all about the glory of heaven and about the way to get there. The Bible is God's letter. And of course, the young man says, I get it. 
I get it. The only way, you don't have to actually be there to know that it's true. And it's a real place. And it is. And all those who know Christ will end up in God's presence. And all those who don't will not. But I don't want to see anybody not end up in God's presence. I want to see everybody come to Christ and repent of their sin and believe in him that he died for them. He took their penalty. He satisfied the justice of the Father that we could have never done. And he took our sin and nailed it to a cross, and he took his righteousness and put it on our account. And so when the Father sees us who know Christ, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. That's what saves us. Nothing else could save us but that. I pray that you know that for sure in your heart, that if you were to die today, you know you'd go and be with the Lord. You have to know that. Don't walk out of here saying, I hope I do, or I think I do. No, know for sure you do. And the only way you can know that is by coming to the Word of God and seeing how salvation is laid out and to see if you've done what God asks you to do. And if you are a believer, please continue to follow Christ with all your heart. And, and the point of Mark is going to be this. Follow him as a servant. Just serve him. Serve him with your life. Serve him with your gifts. Serve him with your family. Serve him with the things that he's given you. Serve him. And you'll never regret it. You'll never regret it one day of your life. So I pray that for us. Let's pray. Lord, again, this morning, I do thank you for the richness found in Scripture. Lord, so many times you can read through a passage of Scripture and miss so many things. And then, Lord, when you start looking at it with more detail or you hear something again, it just adds to our understanding. So, Lord, I pray that you would make us people, too, that see what you're doing in the proper way. And I pray that we would be people, too, who hear with our ears and listen to Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, as we do that for the rest of our life, that we would serve you with our whole heart, with all our mind, with our soul, and with all our strength. And I pray, Lord, our life would give glory to your name and bring others who don't know you into your kingdom. And I pray this in your name. Amen.